Okay, so I'm going to be talking today about um, whether the juvenile justice system works. Um, of course, that's a big statement. I'm not exactly going to evaluate all that, but um, I'm looking at the juvenile justice system in Canada. Um, so it's going to be a propensity score matching study uh, on the impact of the juvenile justice system on adult criminality. Um, since um, the beginning of the 20th century, a lot of Western countries have uh, adopted a separate, juvenile, a separate justice system for minors. So usually that meant people who were below the age of 18. Um, before that, um, a lot of countries would just process minors who commit an offense in the same way they would process adults. Uh, so um, sometimes from the age of seven, they would uh, be tried and sent to detention, or that kind of, uh, of, of thing. Um, around the turn of the century, they realized that probably minors needed something different um, because of their immaturity. So they were seen as not being as responsible as adults for their behavior. They were also seen as having more needs. So, um, of course, detention of young children uh, was seen as uh, probably not a good idea uh, because they needed their parents, they needed to still develop. Um, so a lot of the countries have moved more toward a um, social welfare kind of uh, approach uh, um, to uh, cater for children who commit offenses. Um, there are several, this is good for the adult criminal justice system, but also for the juvenile justice system. There are several strategies or several goals behind um, the, the way the system works. Uh, one of them is retribution. So we're trying to punish basically people who commit offenses. Uh, that's also a way of um, giving a sense of justice to victims. Um, we're trying to deter them. Uh, there's specific deterrence and general deterrence. Specific deterrence means offenders who commit a crime, we're trying to prevent them to commit another one. Uh, general deterrence means that by giving uh, a sanction to someone who commits a crime, we're trying to deter the rest of the population for, from doing the same thing. Um, another goal is rehabilitation. This has been particularly important for juveniles. Uh, the belief behind it is that if we give a treatment or some kind of intervention to the youth, they're less likely to reoffend again. Uh, and that's, that's also um, taking into account the fact that a lot of juveniles who commit offenses, and that, that would be true for adults as well, they have a lot of needs, they have a lot of, um, they have been deprived of a lot of things um, more, more so than non-offenders in the general popul population. So rehabilitation is sort of a way of um, um, solving this problem. Uh, incapacitation is uh, by, uh, usually through detention, we're trying to prevent this, this specific offender from doing another crime. So just basically removing him or her from the population. Um, sometimes these strategies, strategies are seen as conflicting. Uh, of course, in the population, there's a lot of different views, uh, political views, on whether the system should be emphasizing more rehabilitation or retribution. Um, a lot of people will talk about um, um, making youth 
um, accountable for their action. That's sort of a, a way of talking about retribution. Um, but in general, when you think of all these strategies, we can think of it as the, the ultimate goal being to protect society. And it's by, by, to protect society by reducing crime. We're trying to reduce crime in the specific youth who committed an offense, but also in the general population. Um, so if the ultimate goal is to reduce crime, um, is it possible? Can the juvenile justice system help reduce crime? This is the question we're interested in, and we're talking mostly, uh, I'm going to be talking only about specific deterrence, so uh, reducing crime amongst youth who have committed an offence. I'm not talking about the effects it has on the, the rest of the population. Uh, we can see this as a type of targeted prevention. Uh, so we're trying to prevent adolescents uh, who have committed a crime from committing another one in the future. We're targeting, targeting known offenders, so people who already have been in contact with um, the police. Um, the assumption behind this is obviously that we think young offenders are more likely than other adolescents to commit crime in the future. Is this true? Well, there is um, data showing that uh, there is some continuity in delinquency and in, in crime in general from adolescence to adulthood. At the same time, there is in most societies, in most Western societies, a peak in criminal behavior between ages 15 and 25. That's a peak in prevalence and incidence. So incidence mean, meaning there are more crimes being committed uh, by youth that age. Prevalence meaning that there are more people involved in crime between that age, between these two um, ages, 15 and 25. So this means that obviously some uh, adolescents will not go on to being offenders as after 25 or as they're older adults. Um, however, there, we know that there is some continuity in both self-reported and official delinquency. Um, so there is kind of a truth in the assumption that if we target young offenders, we're going to get, you know, a pretty good um, at-risk population because a lot of them will continue to offend. A lot of the adult offenders were offenders when they were younger, but there is still obviously a group of the a, a certain percentage of the population who will offend as adults only, not as children. In in the Canadian um, justice system, I found some data showing that about two-thirds of adult offenders were new to the system. Of course, that doesn't mean that they weren't uh, doing any crime when they were teenagers. They just weren't caught for it, but there's probably a certain number of them who were really not doing anything uh, criminal at that age. Um, uh, but when we, when we look at self-reported delinquency, the correlations are pretty high between adolescence and adulthood, but they're not perfect. So there is some both, there's evidence for both continuity and change in criminal behavior from adult, uh, adolescence to adulthood. But by and large, we think that if we um, target young offenders, that's probably kind of, a, that's a, a good at-risk population, not the only one we should target, but that's a good one. Uh, to target for preventing future criminal behavior. 
So do some juvenile justice systems prevent future criminality? There has been research on it in the past. I'm only listing here um, evaluations that have used pretty good methods. Um, there's a review uh, recently in 2010 that was published, the uh, one of the Campbell Systematic Reviews, I don't know if you're familiar with them, they, um, it's based on the Cochrane Reviews, which are medical reviews. The Campbell uh, Collaboration does reviews more in the social area. Um, and usually they're reviewing randomized controlled trials, and that's the case for this one. They reviewed randomized controlled trials, mostly done in America, uh, two in Australia. I'll go into more detail uh, about their results. Um, there was, I found two studies only using matching approaches, uh, one evaluating the system in Scotland and one evaluating two different um, systems, one in Germany and one in uh, Colorado in the United States. Um, there's, there's more studies doing uh, using an OLS approach, but I'm citing just this one here because that's the uh, people I'm working with who uh, published it. And what I'm doing here today uh, and in this paper is basically uh, reanalyzing their data with, new, with different approaches. So they use an OLS approach to um, evaluate the effectiveness of the system in Quebec. I'm going to use a propensity score matching approach. Uh, so that's why I'm citing it here. Um, the results of the Campbell systematic review um, were a bit disappointing. They were looking at uh, randomized controlled trials. Uh, those were randomized controlled trials comparing diversion to court processing. So after being arrested, the youths were random, randomly assigned to either going through the regular court system um, or they were diverted. Diverted, they could either just be, you know, warned and sent home with a, you know, a letter to their parents or something like this, and that was it. Or they could also receive services. It depended on the study. Most of those studies that, they, that were reviewed uh, were trying to evaluate the effectiveness of the diversion program compared to the usual court system processing. The authors of the Campbell Systematic Review kind of reversed the question, and they used the control group, which was the usual court system, as the intervention group. So they looked at the effect the other way. So they, were, they wanted to look at the normal system, the usual court system, compared to doing nothing. It's not exactly doing nothing, but it's close to it because you're just diverting the youth from the regular court uh, system. Um, so those were randomized control studies. Uh, there were no differences um, between groups in uh, recidivism. Uh, when the shortest period reported in all those studies were evaluated, which could range from 2 to 24 months. Uh, however, when they took the longest period reported in all those studies, they found an actual negative effect of the usual court processing. So um, there was a higher risk of recidivism among youth who went through the regular um, juvenile courts. Um, one might think that, well, you know, if the people who were diverted got some services, that might be the explanation for it. Um, but actually, when you divide the, the, uh, the studies between those who um, gave diverted youth uh, some services and those who didn't, 
the results are the same. The effects, um, well, the longest periods were not available for that comparison, but for the shortest period, there was still no effect in either group. So it looks like no matter where, whether you divert the use from the court system or whether you let them go through the court system, it makes no difference in the recidivism in the sort of short term, because it's still only about three years later. Um, and when they looked at the number of offenses, uh, they found that actually the ones who went through the court system had an, a higher number of offenses. So they were about the same, they had about the same risk of reoffending overall, but if you look at the number of, offen of offenses, they committed more. So that's not very, uh, yeah. I guess, have they done it? Going to the court system is going to cost huge amount of money. So have they actually done a cost? I mean, obviously no. they, they can very easily do a cost benefit analysis of this. They sure. could, yeah. Actually, diversion is just as effective yeah. and cheaper. Um, yeah, diversion without services would would definitely be cheaper. But even with services, with services, you could. It depends what it is. Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, they didn't do an analysis, but it was sort of part of their argument. You know, if we find no effect of the court system, then why spend all that money, right? Um, all right, so uh, the other, uh, another study, the one conducted in Scotland, uh, they used propensity score matching. They wanted to evaluate the effects of different levels of processing on self-reported serious offending in the next year. Um, they used several predictors in the propensity score. They're listed here, gender, uh, non-two-parent family. So there's several uh, indicators there, some of, uh, say, a number of times in trouble with police. So some pretty good indicators of uh, risk of being um, caught and processed in the court system. All these offenders they looked at, or, or all, all these children they looked at here, um, adolescents, um, had reported themselves that they had some previous adversarial contact with a police officer. So all these youths had some contact with a police officer. Some of them were charged, some of them weren't. The difference in their self-reported serious offending for the next year uh, was null, there was no difference. Uh, some of them, after being charged some in Scotland, after being charged, some of the um, youth will be referred to the reporter. The reporter will make decisions based on the mostly social welfare. Um, uh, those who were referred to the reporter versus not, um, there was no difference again in their uh, offending the, the year later. Uh, however, those who were referred to the reporter and whom the reporter sent for a hearing, and the hearing is um, in most cases in this sample, but also in general in Scotland, when a youth is referred to a hearing by the reporter, it ends up, um, they end up being supervised by a social worker. Uh, so it's kind of like a probation, but it's by a social worker. Those who were referred to um, this supervision um, compared to their match controls uh, were actually more likely to, um, to, re -off to offend seriously the next year according to their self-reports. So again, kind of a negative result of, uh, of court processing. And the system in Scotland is seen to be quite progressive uh, in that you know, it's, it's more um, based on the children's needs as opposed to retribution or um, just uh, pure deterrence. So that's a bit disappointing. Um, 
the study here uh, compared, um, this was a report made uh, for the US. Uh, they were comparing two cities, Bremen in Germany and Denver in Colorado, two very different systems. In Bremen in Germany, or well, the system in Germany in general is uh, a lot more based on uh, diversion. So most of the children don't go to court. Very few um, go through detention. In Denver, it's the opposite. It's a lot of the children um, go through the court system once they get ar arrested. Um, and a lot, of, a lot more are uh, sent to supervision, but also uh, to detention. Um, they looked at uh, the effect of arrest at age 16 on change in delinquency from age 16 to 17. So uh, that's, that's also based on self-report. Self they used matching, not propensity score matching, but exact match, matching on gender, age, minority status, history of arrests, uh, self-reported prior involvement in, delinqu in delinquency and involvement with delinquent peers, which are all uh, pretty good predictors of um, being arrested. Um, they found no effect of, our, of arrest in Denver and in Bremen. The same effects were found in both systems, even though um, you could think that the impact of arrest is quite different because uh, it doesn't mean the same thing. It's not as prevalent in Bremen as it is in Denver, but same thing, no effect on uh, their self-reported delinquency. Um, one limitation though is that those, this analysis was based on smaller numbers of children. Um, so it's not as powerful, but at the same time, it's still kind of telling of two different systems, uh, which you'd think would have very different effects having the same kind of effects. Um, finally, um, the study that I'm sort of building on is this study by Uberto Gatti and uh, Frank Vitaro and Richard Tremblay. Um, they looked at adolescents who went through the court system in Quebec and those who didn't. Um, and uh, I'll talk about more about the sample later. They looked at the effects of going through the court system on criminality up to age uh, 25, adult crime up to age 25. Um, it's an OLS approach. They controlled for self-reported delinquency, verbal ability, impulsivity or hyperactivity, broken home, family income, deviant peers, and parental supervision. They found uh, that those who went through the youth court system were actually more likely to have an adult uh, criminal record than those who didn't. Uh, even after controlling for all these uh, predictors. Now, of course, these, the limitation of this is we're not sure that the two groups were really rendered equal by the OLS approach. Um, the other um, sort of uh, caveat is that the, a, lot of, um, a lot of data were missing on some of the predictors. That's why they were restricted to a certain number of predictors. That's also... Um, a problem because some of the participants were completely excluded from the analysis because they had missing data. <clears throat> so I'm going to try to build on this one and, um, and make it a little bit better methodologically. So the question for this study is, does the Quebec juvenile court system prevent adult criminality? Um, just to give you a bit of <laughs> geographical idea, uh, Canada, United States, Mexico. Um, Quebec is 
the province here. I don't know if I can show you. Yeah. So this whole thing here is the province of Quebec. There are 10 provinces in Canada. Uh, Quebec is the French-speaking one. Um, Montreal, where this, the study is based, okay, I want to show you. Yeah, it's about here. So it's an island uh, in the middle of the St. Lawrence River. That's where the uh, sample comes from. So just to put you in, in the context, uh, I'm talking about the justice system in Quebec. It's actually the Canadian justice system, but the laws are implemented by um, provincial bodies. So the police uh, in Quebec is the provincial police of Quebec. Um, and the courts also have different traditions in, uh, in Quebec. So there are wide variations. And it's not just Quebec versus the rest of Canada. It's also from province to province, there are quite wide variations in the way the law is applied. Uh, just as an example, uh, in Quebec, there's about half the number of uh, juveniles who get processed in the court system as there are in Ontario per 100,000 population. And those, those are neighbor, neighboring provinces and usually even in, like politically they're sort of similar more so than say Quebec with the West. Um, but at the same time, the judges just don't make the same kind of decisions and the police officers don't make the same kind of decisions. A lot of youths are diverted at the time of uh, contact with the police officer, so they never really go through the justice system. Um, at the same time, when you look at uh, detention rates, they're also about twice as much in Ontario as they are in Quebec. Um, and compared to the, the average Canadian uh, detention rates, uh, Ontario is higher and Quebec would be lower. Uh, the laws, well, the first one um, that made a system, a juvenile justice system in Canada was the Juvenile Delinquents Act. Uh, that one set the... Um, uh, that one, I think, said the, the age of criminal responsibility at seven. Um, and it was just basically um, wanting to differentiate between juveniles and adults for the first time in Canada. The young offender, and it was based on a kind of a welfare approach. So um, children were, um, were being uh, assessed in terms of what the, their needs were. So children with some needs were given some services, they weren't really, like some of them were in detention, but they were in detention to, for rehabilitation purposes mostly. Um, then in 94, the Young Offenders Act um, came into effect, uh, and the goal of the Young Offenders Act was kind of to bring more justice to the system, because they thought that although, um, you know, the system before was uh, welfare-oriented, um, there were a lot of biases and, you know, different adolescents, different children weren't treated the same way, uh, just depending on their background and things like that. So with the, with the Young Offenders Act, um, uh, Canada was trying to uh, make use, uh, make, make the consequences more uh, linked to the actual crime committed, as opposed to the whole history of the child. So, you know, the, that was sort of the, the justification behind it. Um, that one said the, the age of criminal responsibility to 12. Um, it's still 12 now in Canada. Uh, and now there's the Youth Criminal Justice Act that came into effect in 2003 after loads of discussions and, con and debates. Um, and it was sort of, the idea was to uh, 
solve some of the problems with the Young Offenders Act, which was quite criticized uh, from both perspectives. Some um, people were saying it's too based on, it's too much based on retribution. Some were saying it's not severe enough. Um, what the Youth Criminal Justice Act basically did is um, to kind of be more precise on in which cases uh, youth could be diverted out of the system and in which cases they should be processed. Uh, they, made it, they made it more lenient for uh, non-violent and non-repeat offenders. Um, so it's more rehabilitation oriented for those uh, adolescents, but for those who commit violent crimes or who commit crimes several times, uh, it's, been, it's, mo it's moved more in the more severe um, direction. But today, um, the youth I'm going to be talking about were under the Young Offenders Act because they were, they, they were adults when the other one came into effect. So I'm going to talk about the effects of the Young Offenders Act, basically, in Quebec. Um, so the sample comes from um, a longitudinal study called the Montreal Longitudinal and Experimental Study. I'm not going to talk about the experiment here, and it's not really relevant to what I'm talking about here. Um, there were 1,161 11, boys who were recruited from low SES areas in Montreal. So the idea was to target uh, children who were at higher risk of uh, being delinquent. So they were boys, first of all, and also they were in lower SES areas. Um, they were in kindergarten, so age six when they were first recruited. Uh, what I'm, the way that this study differs from the other one from Getty and colleagues is uh, that I'm using multiple imputation to uh, correct for missing data on the predictors. So that'll, be, that'll allow me to use a lot more predictors um, uh, in the analysis. Uh, and I'm using propensity score matching to reduce the selection bias to try to do it better than the OLS method. Um, so this is the timeline of the study. So they were recruited at age six in uh, 84. Those, they're basically my age almost. Um, and they were followed until they were 25. Uh, so recruitment age six. Age of criminal responsibility is 12 and age of majority is 18. So that's when, when I talk about adult crime, it's 18 and above. Um, the youth court records um, are available for everybody. So there's no missing data imputation there. We have them all. Um, so this is sort of the treatment that I'm evaluating, the involvement with the youth uh, justice courts, whether the kids went through the courts or not. Um, the outcome is adult official criminality. So I'm, and the same for the adults, we had consent for getting all their records. So we have them all. There's no missing data there. So no, mis no uh, multiple imputation there either. Um, so we're looking at the effect of being involved in the, in the youth justice courts on adult criminality. Uh, and we're, it's not self-report, it's uh, official uh, data. And we're using, yeah? But only if they Well, the, the data we have of them is that they were never, they yeah, never committed a crime. So it's, it's a zero. Yeah, it's a zero. yeah. 
Huh? Or never caught, of course, yeah. This is official data, yeah. Um, and the predictors of, for the, that I'm using for the propensity score matching um, were uh, all pre uh, age 12. Um, so th those are, I'll, I'll show you the whole list of them after. Um, we had data from uh, the mothers, we had data from the teachers at different years uh, between age, ages 6 and 11. Uh, we had data from the self-reports of the young children themselves. Um, and I'm also going to add another control, which is their self-reported delinquency from age tw 10 to age 17. I'll, I'll show you later how this was um, used. So is this clear? We're looking at the effects of the involvement with the juvenile court system, so yes or no, involved or not, on adult crime. I'm looking at three some very simple outcomes, whether you had the, the offender or the, the youth had uh, eventually an adult uh, criminal record until age 25, um, how many nonviolent and how many violent offenses in adulthood. That's all I'm looking at for the uh, outcome. Um, I'm going to try to match. Uh, adolescents who went through the uh, juvenile court system to those who didn't based on a large number of predictors. So I'm going to show you next the list of predictors that I used. There were more that were excluded because they weren't predictive of being involved in the youth justice system or not. So with propensity score matching, what we're trying to do is basically to look at everything that predicts the treatment so what makes the difference between youth who will be go, um, involved in the youth justice system and those who wouldn't? Um, and then we match, the, uh, we use a, a, a logistic regression uh, to predict that. And uh, we use the prediction score to match children. So um, everybody has a score based on the, the whole list of predictors, one score that represents their propensity to have gone through the uh, court system or not. Uh, and we, use, we, we match children based on that score. So, um, and so, of course, I, I use multiple imputation to uh, correct for the fact that we had uh, missing data. So I'm basically doing the analyses 50 times on 50 uh, complete samples. Um, that's how I can answer questions about multiple imputation later if you want to. Um, but so basically, I'm imputing the data several times. In this case, it's 50 times uh, to replace the missing data by other data. So the first, the first um, thing we need to do when we do propensity score matching is to check whether the match worked, the matching worked. So the idea is to make two groups equivalent. We had 1,100 something children in the whole sample. 195 of them were involved with the youth uh, courts. So I'm using these 195 treated comparing to the best match uh, amongst the rest of them. So before they were matched, so on the left, you'll, you'll have all the variables I'm looking at. There's a second table, because there's more. Uh, but this is the first half. Uh, all the variables that I used, uh, in, the first, in the second column, this is unmatched. They're, 
the difference between the two groups before they were matched and the difference between the two groups after they were matched. Uh, and the, the figure there corresponds to this, to the percent bias. The percent bias is basically just a standardized difference between the two groups. So for example, uh, for self-reported delinquency, um, the difference between, uh, before we match them, the difference between the 195 treated and the rest of the sample uh, was 59%. So uh, they were 59, um, what is it? It's in standard deviations. So 59% of a standard deviation higher um, than, than the control group. Does that make sense? Okay, so the, the, the ones who went through the youth court system were much more, uh, reported much more uh, delinquency at ages 10 to 12 than the control group. After they were matched, there was only a six percent difference in standard deviations, so it was much reduced. The idea with propensity score matching is we're trying to reduce the, the bias between the two groups as much as possible, and the, uh, generally we're trying to, to aim for below five, five percent of a standard deviation. So there are some figures here that are a bit higher, so I'm going to work a bit more on that, but um, it's, it's close enough to be, there are absolutely not, no significant difference. Uh, no statistically significant difference between the treated and non-treated. Um, so, you know, when you're doing propensity score matching, some children just are out of the range because, uh, say, some treated children will have such high, high scores on their some such high propensity scores that they can't have a good match. So those are are excluded. In this approach, I on average I had to exclude about five. So it's not so bad in, you know, it's, it's less than 3% of the, of the treated who were excluded. Um, <clears throat> so this is just to show you the list. You've probably had time to read through it. Um, so a lot of, uh, it's everything before age 12. Um, a lot of uh, information on their disruptiveness, antisociality, so a lot of behavior data. Um, the parental supervision they got. Um, use of punishment by the parents, uh, there's repeated a year in school, um, and there's also things about their peers and their classmates and their classmates' fathers. Um, second list, so there are three, uh, 30 uh, predictors altogether. So this is the second list, mostly um, kind of uh, demographic things like uh, parental education, occupation, um, whether the parents had a criminal record, we had the information on that, mother and, and father. Um, number of conduct disorder symptoms at age 12, so those were um, evaluations based on the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Um, and also a proxy for verbal IQ, so verbal um, ability here. Uh, we. This is the only one that's after age 12, and the reason we used it is it, it was quite a good predictor and we thought we'd be missing out if we didn't use it. Um, in the end, the results are not different, but we still wanted to include it um, uh, just to protect ourselves from potential criticism, but also um, because we think IQ is quite stable, and especially just between age 11 and 13, we thought, well, this is probably a good approximation of what the IQ was at age 13, and it's very unlikely that being involved 
in the youth justice system would have any impact on it. So, you know, this is kind of the... So usually you have to be careful about reverse causation when you're using predictors, but for IQ, we thought we were pretty safe. But in the end, it doesn't make a difference. Anyways. So on average, um, we reduced the bias to about 3% of a standard deviation overall. Um, so it was pretty good. So now we're going to look at the results of uh, the analysis without matching and after matching on the three um, outcomes I listed before. Oh, sorry, that's not very clear. The first outcome is whether um, the individual had an adult uh, criminal record or not. So it's an odds ratio we're looking at. Uh, second outcome is the number of nonviolent offenses as, as adult. And the um, third outcome is number of violent adult offenses. Um, so if we're looking at the first column, that's with no controls, just comparing the 195 uh, individuals who got a, a criminal, uh, who got a, a youth record to those who didn't, uh, they're 10 times more likely, uh, if you use no controls, they're 10 times more likely to have a, an adult criminal record. Uh, they commit about 10 times more uh, nonviolent offenses and almost 20 times more um, violent adult offenses. But of course, that's without controlling for anything. Column B uh, is including all 30 controls that I listed before, but in, in an OLS. So um, the figures are reduced, but they're still highly significant. Uh, the three stars means uh, uh, less than 0.001. Um, so six times more likely to have an adult criminal record. So this is without matching, but just using the OLS approach with the 30 predictors. And I'm using multiple imputations, so this is the kind of pooled um, um, estimate of these 50 different uh, uh, complete uh, samples. Uh, column C is the one we're interested in. Oh, sorry. Uh, we're looking at after matching. So here, of course, the, the sample is quite reduced. I, I was using um, a nearest neighbor approach with, um, so each offender, uh, each young offender was matched to a maximum of two controls uh, based on their propensity score. And within a caliper, so it meant that you can't be matched to this offender who's really, really far, uh, this control who's really, really far, you had to be within uh, a certain um, uh, minimum and maximum around your uh, propensity score. Um, still after matching, the ones who, were, who went through the youth court system are four and a half times more likely to have an adult criminal record. They, are om they have almost four times as many um, adult nonviolent offenses and almost nine times more as many violent offenses as adults. That's after matching. Uh, I did an additional control. I just wanted to look at, uh, because we had, we, in the matching we used delinquency up to age 11, uh, up to age 12. We wanted, I wanted to see um, what happens if we control for um, delinquency just the year just before the offender committed an offense. So, with, so each uh, offender committed an offense at a certain age. So I looked at their matched, so they were already matched 
I looked at their match control and looked at their delinquency just the year just before, their self-reported delinquency the year just before the offender committed his first offense. Uh, so that was kind of entered as, uh, as a control in the, in the analysis. Um, it doesn't make a difference at all, almost. Um, still about four, more than four times more likely to have a criminal record as adults. Um, almost four times more uh, non-violent offences and about almost nine times more violent offences as adults. So basically, the boys who went through court as adolescents were more likely to have an adult criminal record and they committed more non-violent and violent offences um, <clears throat> than their matched peers who never faced the, criminal, uh, the juvenile justice system. Uh, so they, they were delinquent before age 12 and not after. Right, so you got predicted delinquency, but someone might have turned over a new leaf and Yeah, that's true, but... So in some ways you're getting the joint effect here of the court system, but also of, you know, whether or not they actually did anything wrong. Um, yeah, but that's why I wanted to control for the delinquency the year just before the first offence as well, so not so just age 12. Not necessarily, no. So no. Controls might have never been arrested, might have never done anything that would have got them arrested. Um, yeah, it's true. Mm -hmm. uh, but but it, was it possible that they did do something wrong, you know, but they didn't go to court? Their that's the idea, that we think because we match them on, you know, their propensity to go to court, that they're as close as possible to going to court. So that's the idea behind the, the matching with all the predictors. Um, but of course we don't know. I was trying to look for information on whether they had been ever arrested. Uh, we didn't have that information, unfortunately, because the, the information we have is um, from the court files. So we know whether they've been to court. The ideal would have been whether they've ever been arrested and then some of them will be sent to court or not. But we're also evaluating uh, the effect of being caught that's sort of that's more what we're evaluating. We're evaluating the effect of being ca caught by the police because some a lot of adolescents we know this from self-report data. A lot of adolescents will commit things that technically could get them um, an official record. Um, you know the, the the proportions are quite high. You'll find often data like showing like 75% of adolescents will admit to have committed something uh, against the law. Yeah. Yeah, we could. But the thing is, I'll sh 
That's part of the limitations as well. Is uh, some of them, some of the, some people might have been arrested and then diverted pre-court. So that's why I'm saying that I'm evaluating the court system, not the whole juvenile justice system, which also involves police yeah. making some decisions. So, but, but we don't know if we're evaluating, uh, you know, we're evaluating kind of a mixture of the police jobs and the court's jobs. Yeah. I'm just wondering about information on the crime itself, because, you know, if there were different, if, there were, if you had a, a way of deciphering from different severities or something within, of, of the crime committed, you could control within your treatment or... Yeah, that was, that's sort of uh, the next step, is to take only the ones who went through court and look at what happened to them. Is that what you mean? Or, because the ones, we could look at the self-report data and look at what they did. Yeah, more what I mean is if, if it's a very minor crime, so it was kind of on the margin of being deferred or being admitted, yeah. that they're really the ones you're interested in, rather than the ones who've, con who've committed more serious crimes, because you know, they're arguably different by virtue of having committed the crime. Yeah. But the thing here is we can't, you know, the controls haven't c been charged with any crime. So sure, we can't... They're, they're just below the margin, right? Yeah. Presumably. Uh, okay, so you would, you would take only the ones who committed a crime officially. Crime. Yeah. Um, I did look... I, yeah, I don't have the answer to that question. That's a good, that's a good way of... Um, that's a good idea of how to look at it. What I did that is kind of close to that is um, I looked at... Um, children who were below the median or above the median on their self-reported delinquency before age 12 um, and looked at whether that had any effect, any impact. Um, so someone might think that going through the court system, if you're a very uh, low kind of low-risk low offender, might be more detrimental than, than if you're already, you know, a pretty... Uh, career-oriented uh, criminal, but um, there was no difference. It was the same that we found negative effects in both groups. Uh, they seemed to be stronger actually in the more delinquent people. So the effects were stronger in, in, in that direction, in the negative direction for um, kids who were more delinquent between ages 10 and 12. So of course that's still pre-teen. It's not, it's not as good as your suggestion. I might uh, look at, into that. Um, so just basically to conclude, uh, the contact with the juvenile court system is ineffective at preventing future crime uh, and it might even be making it worse. Even after equating treated and non-treated groups on pre-intervention pre characteristics uh, such as self-reported antisocial behavior, family characteristics, parental and social behavior, that kind of thing. Um, are we going in the wrong way <laughs> with our juvenile justice system? It looks like it's not just Quebec, Scotland, uh, the US, um, Germany. It's still not really doing anything, no matter what we do, <laughs> or it's making them worse. Um, a possible explanations for why this could be. Um, there's two main ones. One is the deviant, deviancy training. This, this is more a good explanation for uh, detention. Than, than any other measures we might take with use. So it's not, it's not good enough because it doesn't cover all the kids who go through the court system. A lot of them never 
are detained. Uh, the idea behind deviancy training is that if you share time uh, with other deviant peers, you're uh, more likely to get um, uh, reinforced for deviant behavior. Um, so it's just basically uh, deviancy being uh, reinforced and um, uh, encouraged by your peers laughing and talking about crime and things like that. Um, so this works if you think of um, the court system as making kids more likely to hang out together, deviant kids more likely to hang out together. So that works for detention measures, but doesn't really work for other kind of measures like probation. So it could explain part of the effects. Another possibility is labeling. There's a lot of theory around labeling. The, the idea that once you're labeled um, delinquent or deviant, uh, you sort of, um, you yourself and people around you think of you that way and then uh, you lose some opportunities. Um, you yourself define, you define yourself as a deviant so you're more likely to do deviant behavior. Um, it looks like there is some kind of effect that way. Uh, maybe police officers, once they know uh, this kid has been to court before, they're more likely to kind of check, check up on him or you know, they're more likely to target him maybe. So that could be another uh, explanation. Obviously with the data I have, it's not really possible to look at it. Um, limitations, well, obviously the propensity score matching approach is uh, an, uh, um, looking at selection on observables. So anything that makes a difference between those who go to court and those who don't, that wasn't measured, we can't control for it. Um, so that's the major limitation. Uh, also, like we were talking about earlier, we can't evaluate the effect of arrest itself. Um, so some, a lot of the children, especially in Quebec, are arrested and then diverted right away before they go to court. We don't know in our sample who was in that situation. Um, so that's it. Oh, no future directions. <laughs> Um, what I want to do now is look at just the ones who went through court because uh, we, know, we know what they committed. We know what measures were taken. So I want to look at the different measures. That's, that might help um, answer the question of the mechanisms, whether it could be deviancy training or that kind of thing. If, for example, the kids who are um, sent to detention are worse off than the other ones in terms of their adult criminality. Um, so I wanted to see what, what impact the first decision the courts make has on the rest of their trajectory. So it's, gonna, it's only going to be limited to those 195 youth, but it's still, um, it might be helpful to know what to do <laughs> because right now I'm just saying, well, it doesn't work. But, you know, finding uh, solutions might be uh, interesting as well. So that's it. Thank you. Yeah, um, they had an odds ratio. They only looked at um, whether or not the uh, individual had an adult criminal record or not. 
So it's just this first outcome here that we can control, that, that we can compare it with. We got an odds ratio of, um, well, in the end, about four, four and a half. They had an odds ratio of about, of about six with their controls. So it looks like the OLS was doing a pretty good job as at controlling for um, the effects, or at least, you know, a, a, as good a job as the propensity score matching would. Can you get the OLS closer to propensity score by, say, adding interaction to those controls? I didn't try. I don't know. You have the imputation as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's the other improvement on the, uh, so what's the, on the study. So what's the sample size between what they were using and what you have? Um, I think, so we had uh, 195 uh, treated, mm -hmm. and I think they had about, they had almost half of that. Okay. Yeah, so there, there's quite a bit of missing data. Uh, no, so so that's not... Right. still six. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Who needs to do propensity score? <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there any more questions? Do yeah. researchers working with self-reported measures of delinquency ever have concerns that there might be quite yeah, yeah, that's sort of the general the general idea is that when you have self-report, um, you find much higher rates of delinquency in general. Um, in incidentally, <laughs> we did have self-report information at age 21. Um, the reason why I, earlier I was saying I think it's, it might be more of a labeling effect is that if you look at the self-reported delinquency at age 21, so it's not up, up to age 25, but it's still uh, in adulthood, uh, there's no difference between the two groups. If you don't control for anything or if you control in an OLS there's a difference. So the ones who went through the juvenile court system are self-report more delinquency than uh, controls. But if you match, then the difference disappears. So, so the possibility is that those, um, that it's basically a labeling effect, a very strong labeling effect that the ones who went through youth court, when they become adults are kind of, um, checked or, you know, are, are more um, targeted by police officers. So they're more likely to be caught. Or maybe it's the same, the same um, factors that got them caught in the first place as adolescents that we couldn't control for, some kind of mystery factor that makes them more likely to be caught would be the same in adulthood as it was in adolescence. Uh, the problem though, and the reason why I'm not including this finding in the results is we have about half the sample who responded to that, to that uh, self-report measure at age 21, whereas for official data we have everybody. So, um, you know, the, the effect might be because of the small sample. It doesn't look like it. Like I read the analyses looking at only the ones, only that sub-sample where we had the self-report information, the results are almost the same. They're, they're a bit weaker, but they're, they're still significant. So there, it looks like there's a real difference between official data and self-report data. Do you think any of your um, conclusions have implications for the uh, adult criminal justice system? Yeah, well, I, I can't say because I haven't evaluated it, but it's very likely that, you know, what we find for youth, we'll find for adults as well. It's not, 
you know, people don't change that much between age 17 and 18 and 19. So, it, and, and most of the criminals um, see the peak is, you know, between 15 and 25. So a lot of people in the adult system are quite young as well. And so they're quite likely to be affected in the same way um, by the system. Although it's a different system, so it might have different effects, but it's, it's unlikely that it has very positive effects all of a sudden in adulthood. Probably uh, wrap up there. Perfect. Yep. Perfect timing. <laughs> Thanks. I think that was a really good introduction to a fancy score matching strategy for anyone who's never used it before. So they'll all be going and doing it now. Yeah. So really clear. <laughs> I'd be happy questions. to answer questions about it. I've studied okay. it a lot. Yeah. Thanks again. Thank you.